Chapter 11, Part 2 of the Suppression of the African Slave Trade to the United States of America, 1638 to 1870, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Randall Meredith. 88. Notorious Infractions of the Laws this decade is especially noteworthy for the great increase of illegal importations into the South. These became bold, frequent, and notorious. Systematic introduction, on a considerable scale, probably commenced in the 40s, although with great secrecy. To have boldly ventured into New Orleans, with Negroes freshly imported from Africa, would not only have brought down upon the head of the importer the vengeance of our very philanthropic Uncle Sam, but also the anathemas of the whole sect of philanthropists and negrophilists everywhere. To import them for years, however, into quiet places, evading with impunity the penalty of the law, and the ranting of the thin-skinned sympathizers with Africa, was gradually to popularize the traffic by creating a demand for laborers, and thus to pave the way for the gradual revival of the slave trade. To this end, a few men, bold and energetic, determined ten or twelve years ago, 1848 or 1850, to commence the business of importing Negroes, slowly at first, but surely. And for this purpose they selected a few secluded places on the coast of Florida, Georgia, and Texas for the purpose of concealing their stock until it could be sold out. Without specifying other places, let me draw your attention to a deep and abrupt pocket or indentation in the coast of Texas, about 30 miles from Brazos, Santiago. Into this pocket a slaver could run at any hour of the night, because there was no hindrance at the entrance, and here she could discharge her cargo of movables upon the projecting bluff, and again proceed to sea inside of three hours. The livestock thus landed could be marched a short distance across the main island, over a porous soil which refuses to retain the recent footprints, until they were again placed in boats, and were concealed upon some of the innumerable little islands which thicken on the waters of the laguna in the rear. These islands, being covered with a thick growth of bushes and grass, offer an inscrutable hiding place for the black diamonds. These methods became, however, toward 1860, too slow for the radicals, and the trade grew more defiant and open. The yacht Wanderer, arrested on suspicion in New York and released, landed in Georgia six months later 420 slaves, who were never recovered. The Augusta Despatch says, Citizens of our city are probably interested in the enterprise. It is hinted that this is the third cargo landed by the same company during the last six months. Two parties of Africans were brought into Mobile with impunity. One bark strongly suspected of having landed a cargo of slaves, was seized on the Florida coast. Another vessel was reported to be landing slaves near Mobile. A letter from Jacksonville, Florida, stated that a bark had left there for Africa to ship a cargo for Florida and Georgia. Stephen A. Douglas said that there was not the shadow of doubt that the slave trade had been carried on quite extensively for a long time back and that there had been more slaves imported into the southern states during the last year than had ever been imported before in any one year, even when the slave trade was legal. 
It was his confident belief that over 15,000 slaves had been brought into this country during the past year, 1859. He had seen with his own eyes 300 of those recently imported miserable beings in a slave pen in Vicksburg, Mississippi, and also large numbers at Memphis, Tennessee. It was currently reported that depots for these slaves existed in over 20 large cities and towns in the South, and an interested person boasted to a senator about 1860 that 12 vessels would discharge their living freight upon our shores within 90 days from the 1st of June last, and that between 60 and 70 cargoes had been successfully introduced in the last 18 months. The New York Tribune doubted the statement, but John C. Underwood, formerly of Virginia, wrote to the paper saying that he was satisfied that the correspondent was correct. I have, he said, had ample evidences of the fact that reopening the African slave trade is a thing already accomplished, and the traffic is brisk and rapidly increasing. In fact, the most vital question of the day is not the opening of this trade, but its suppression. The arrival of cargoes of Negroes, fresh from Africa, in our southern ports, is an event of frequent occurrence. Negroes, newly landed, were openly advertised for sale in the public press, and bids for additional importations made. In reply to one of these, the mobile Mercury facetiously remarks, some Negroes who never learned to talk English went up the railroad the other day. Congressman declared on the floor of the House, the slave trade may therefore be regarded as practically reestablished, and petitions like that from the American Missionary Society recited the fact that this piratical and illegal trade, this inhuman invasion of the rights of men, this outrage on civilization and Christianity, this violation of the laws of God and man, is openly countenanced and encouraged by a portion of the citizens of some of the states of this union. From such evidence, it seems clear that the slave trade laws, in spite of the efforts of the government, in spite even of much opposition to these extra-legal methods in the South itself, were grossly violated, if not nearly nullified, in the latter part of the decade 1850 to 1860. 89. Apathy of the Federal Government During the decade, there was some attempt at reactionary legislation, chiefly directed at the Treaty of Washington. June 13, 1854, Slidell, from the Committee on Foreign Relations, made an elaborate report to the Senate, advocating the abrogation of the Eighth Article of that treaty, on the ground that it was costly, fatal to the health of the sailors, and useless, as the trade had actually increased under its operation. Both this and a similar attempt in the House failed, as did also an attempt to substitute life imprisonment for the death penalty. Most of the actual legislation naturally took the form of appropriations. In 1853, there was an attempt to appropriate $20,000. This failed, and the appropriation of $8,000 in 1856 was the first for ten years. The following year brought a similar appropriation, and in 1859 and 1860, $75,000 and $40,000 respectively were appropriated. Of attempted legislation to strengthen the laws, there was plenty. Propositions to regulate the issue of sea letters and the use of our flag, to prevent the coolie trade, or the bringing in of apprentices, or African laborers, to stop the coastwise trade, 
to assent to a right of search and to amend the Constitution by forever prohibiting the slave trade. The efforts of the executive during this period were criminally lax and negligent. The general government did not exert itself in good faith to carry out either its treaty stipulations or the legislation of Congress in regard to the matter. If a vessel was captured, her owners were permitted to bond her, and thus continue her in the trade. And if any man was convicted of this form of piracy, the executive always interposed between him and the penalty of his crime. The laws providing for the seizure of vessels engaged in the traffic were so constructed as to render the duty unremunerative, and marshals now find their fees for such services to be actually less than their necessary expenses. No one who bears this fact in mind will be surprised at the great indifference of these officers to the continuing of the slave trade. In fact, he will be ready to learn that the laws of Congress upon the subject had become a dead letter, and that the suspicion was well grounded that certain officers of the federal government had actually connived at their violation. From 1845 to 1854, in spite of the well-known activity of the trade, but five cases obtained cognizance of the New York district. Of these, Captains Mansfield and Driscoll forfeited their bonds of $5,000 each, and escaped, in the case of the notorious Cano, Nothing had been done as late as 1856, although he was arrested in 1847. Captain Jefferson turned state's evidence, and in the case of Captain Matthew, a null prosequi was entered. Between 1854 and 1856, 32 persons were indicted in New York, of whom only 13 had at the latter date been tried, and only one of these convicted. These dismissals were seldom on account of insufficient evidence. In the notorious case of the Wanderer, she was arrested on suspicion, released, and soon after she landed a cargo of slaves in Georgia. Some who attempted to seize the Negroes were arrested for larceny, and in spite of the efforts of Congress, the captain was never punished. The yacht was afterwards started on another voyage, and being brought back to Boston was sold to her former owner for about one-third her value. The bark Emily was seized on suspicion and released, and finally caught red-handed on the coast of Africa. She was sent to New York for trial, but disappeared under a certain slave captain, Townsend, who had, previous to this, in the face of the most convincing evidence, been acquitted at Key West. The squadron commanders of this time were by no means as efficient as their predecessors, and spent much of their time, apparently, in discussing the right of search, Instead of a number of small, light vessels, which by the reports of experts were repeatedly shown to be the only efficient craft, the government, until 1859, persisted in sending out three or four great frigates. Even these did not attend faithfully to their duties. A letter from on board one of them shows that, out of a 15 months alleged service, only 22 days were spent on the usual cruising ground for slavers, and 13 of these at anchor. 11 months were spent at Madeira and Cape Verde Islands, 300 miles from the coast and 3,000 miles from the slave market. British commanders report the apathy of American officers and the extreme caution of their instructions, which allowed many slavers to escape. The officials at Washington often remained in blissful and perhaps willing ignorance of the state of the trade. 
while Americans were smuggling slaves by the thousands into Brazil and by the hundreds into the United States, Secretary Graham was recommending the abrogation of the Eighth Article of the Treaty of Washington. So, too, when the Cuban slave trade was reaching unprecedented activity, and while slavers were being fitted out in every port on the Atlantic seaboard, Secretary Kennedy naively reports, The time has come, perhaps, when it may be properly commended to the notice of Congress to inquire into the necessity of further continuing the regular employment of a squadron on the African coast. Again, in 1855, the government has advices that the slave trade south of the equator is entirely broken up. In 1856, the reports are favorable. In 1857, a British commander writes, No vessel has been here for one year, certainly. I think for nearly three years there have been no American cruisers on these waters, where a valuable and extensive American commerce is carried on. I cannot, therefore, but think that this continued absence of foreign cruisers looks as if they were intentionally withdrawn, and as if the government did not care to take measures to prevent the American flag being used to cover slave trade transactions. Nevertheless, in the same year, according to Secretary Tusi, the force on the coast of Africa has fully accomplished its main object. Finally, in the same month in which the Wanderer and her mates were openly landing cargoes in the South, President Buchanan, who seems to have been utterly devoid of a sense of humor, was urging the annexation of Cuba to the United States as the only method of suppressing the slave trade. About 1859, the frequent and notorious violations of our laws aroused even the Buchanan government. A larger appropriation was obtained, swift light steamers were employed, and though we may well doubt whether, after such a carnival, illegal importations entirely ceased, as the President informed Congress, yet some sincere efforts at suppression were certainly begun. From 1850 to 1859, we have few notices of captured slavers, but in 1860 the increased appropriation of the 35th Congress resulted in the capture of 12 vessels with 3,119 Africans. The Act of June 16, 1860, enabled the President to contract with the Colonization Society for the return of recaptured Africans, and by a long-needed arrangement, cruisers were to proceed direct to Africa with such cargoes, instead of first landing them in this country. 90. Attitude of the Southern Confederacy The attempt, initiated by the Constitutional Fathers, to separate the problem of slavery from that of the slave trade had, after a trial of half a century, signally failed and for well-defined economic reasons. The nation had at least come to the parting of the ways, one of which led to a free labor system, the other to a slave system fed by the slave trade. Both sections of the country naturally hesitated at the crossroads. The North clung to the delusion that a territorially limited system of slavery without a slave trade was still possible in the South. The South hesitated to fight for her logical object, slavery and free trade in Negroes, and, in her moral and economic dilemma, sought to make autonomy and the Constitution her object. The real line of contention was, however, fixed by years of development, and was unalterable by the present whims or wishes of the contestants, no matter how important or interesting these might be. The triumph of the North meant free labor. The triumph of the South meant slavery and the slave trade. 
It is doubtful if many of the Southern leaders ever deceived themselves by thinking that Southern slavery, as it then was, could long be maintained without a general or a partial reopening of the slave trade. Many had openly declared this a few years before, and there was no reason for a change of opinion. Nevertheless, at the outbreak of actual war and secession, there were powerful and decisive reasons for relegating the question temporarily to the rear. In the first place, only by this means could the adherence of important border states be secured, without the aid of which secession was folly. Secondly, while it did no harm to laud the independence of the South and the kingship of Cotton in stump speeches and conventions, yet when it came to actual hostilities, the South sorely needed the aid of Europe, and this a nation fighting for slavery in the slave trade stood poor chance of getting. Consequently, after attacking the slave trade laws for a decade, and their execution for a quarter century, we find the Southern leaders inserting, in both provisional and the permanent constitutions of the Confederate States, the following article. The importation of Negroes of the African race from any foreign country other than the slaveholding states or territories of the United States of America is hereby forbidden, and Congress is required to pass such laws as shall effectually prevent the same. Congress shall also have power to prohibit the introduction of slaves from any state not a member of or territory not belonging to this Confederacy. The attitude of the Confederate government toward this article is best illustrated by its circular of instructions to its foreign ministers. It has been suggested to this government from a source of unquestioned authenticity that, after the recognition of our independence by the European powers, an expectation is generally entertained by them that in our treaties of amity and commerce, a clause will be introduced making stipulations against the African slave trade. It is even thought that the neutral powers may be inclined to insist upon the insertion of such a clause as a sine qua non. You are well aware of how firmly fixed in our Constitution is the policy of this Confederacy against the opening of that trade. But we are informed that false and insidious suggestions have been made by the agents of the United States at European courts of our intention to change our Constitution as soon as peace is restored and of authorizing the importation of slaves from Africa. If, therefore, you should find, in your intercourse with the cabinet to which you are accredited, that any such impressions are entertained, you will use every proper effort to remove them, and if an attempt is made to introduce into any treaty which you may be charged with negotiating stipulations on the subject just mentioned, you will assume, in behalf of your government, the position which, under the direction of the President, I now proceed to develop. The Constitution of the Confederate States is an agreement made between independent states. By its terms, all the powers of government are separated into classes as follows, viz. First, such powers as the states delegate to the general government. Second, such powers as the states agree to refrain from exercising, although they do not delegate them to the general government. Third, such powers as the states, without delegating them to the general government, thought proper to exercise by direct agreement between themselves contained in the Constitution. Fourth, all remaining powers of sovereignty, which not being delegated to the Confederate States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people thereof, 
especially in relation to the importation of African Negroes, was it deemed important by the states that no power to permit it should exist in the Confederate government. It will thus be seen that no power is delegated to the Confederate government over this subject, but that it is included in the third class above referred to of powers exercised directly by the states. This government unequivocally and absolutely denies its possession of any power whatever over the subject and cannot entertain any proposition in relation to it. The policy of the Confederacy is as fixed and immutable on this subject as the imperfection of human nature permits human resolve to be. No additional agreements, treaties, or stipulations can commit these states to the prohibition of this African slave trade with more binding efficacy than those they have themselves devised. A just and generous confidence in their good faith on this subject exhibited by friendly powers will be far more efficacious than persistent efforts to induce this government to assume the exercise of powers which it does not possess. We trust, therefore, that no unnecessary discussions on this matter will be introduced into your negotiations. If, unfortunately, this reliance should prove ill-founded, you will decline continuing negotiations on your side and transfer them to us at home. This attitude of the conservative leaders of the South, if it meant anything, meant that individual state action could, when it pleased, reopen the slave trade. The radicals were, of course, not satisfied with any veiling of the ulterior purpose of the new slave republic and attacked the constitutional provision violently. If, said one, the clause be carried into the permanent government, our whole movement is defeated. It will abolitionize the border slave states. It will brand our institutions. Slavery cannot share a government with democracy. It cannot bear a brand upon it, thence another revolution. Having achieved one revolution to escape democracy at the north, it must still achieve another to escape it at the south. That it will ultimately triumph, none can doubt. 91. Attitude of the United States In the north, with all the hesitation in many matters, there existed unanimity in regard to the slave trade, and the new Lincoln government ushered in the new policy of uncompromising suppression by hanging the first American slave trader who ever suffered the extreme penalty of the law. One of the earliest acts of President Lincoln was a step which had been necessary since 1808, but had never been taken is the unification of the whole work of suppression into the hands of one responsible department. By an order dated May 2, 1861, Caleb B. Smith, Secretary of the Interior, was charged with the execution of the slave trade laws, and he immediately began energetic work. Early in 1861, as soon as the withdrawal of the Southern members untied the hands of Congress, Two appropriations of $900,000 each were made to suppress the slave trade. The first appropriations commensurate with the vastness of the task. These were followed by four appropriations of $17,000 each in the years 1863 to 1867, and two of $12,500 each in 1868 and 1869. The first work of the new secretary was to obtain a corps of efficient assistance, to this end, he assembled all the marshals of the loyal seaboard states at New York and gave them instruction and opportunity to inspect actual slavers. Congress also, for the first time, offered them proper compensation. 
The next six months showed the effect of this policy in the fact that five vessels were seized and condemned, and four slave traders were convicted and suffered the penalty of their crimes. This is probably the largest number of convictions ever obtained, and certainly the only ones for many years. Meantime, the government opened negotiations with Great Britain, and the Treaty of 1862 was signed June 7th and carried out by Act of Congress July 11th. Specially commissioned war vessels of either government were by this agreement authorized to search merchant vessels on the high seas and specified coasts, and if they were found to be slavers, or, on account of their construction or equipment, were suspected to be such, they were to be sent for condemnation to one of the mixed courts established at New York, Sierra Leone, and the Cape of Good Hope. These courts, consisting of one judge and one arbitrator on the part of each government, were to judge the facts without appeal, and upon condemnation by them, the culprits were to be punished according to the laws of their respective countries. The area in which this right of search could be exercised was somewhat enlarged by an additional article to the treaty, signed in 1863. In 1870, the mixed courts were abolished, but the main part of the treaty was left in force. The Act of July 17, 1862, enabled the President to contract with foreign governments of the apprenticing of recaptured Africans in the West Indies, and in 1864, the coastwise slave trade was forever prohibited. By these measures, the trade was soon checked, and before the end of the war, entirely suppressed. The vigilance of the government, however, was not checked, and as late as 1866, a squadron of ten ships with 113 guns patrolled the slave coast. Finally, the 13th Amendment legally confirmed what the war had already accomplished, and slavery and the slave trade fell at one blow. End of chapter 11, part 2